Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Stephen was the church's first martyr. And if, if you've spent any time in Sunday school, you may have been told that, because that's just one of the basic building blocks of our faith is to understand a little bit of church history. Church, we say born on the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Everybody who's been through Sunday school ought to know at least that about the church. Its founder, Jesus Christ, anybody ought to know that about the church. The first martyr, Stephen, anybody ought to know that at least about the history of the church. But knowing that, let me kind of say this. If I were to say, Stephen was the first martyr of the church, let that be a lesson to you. What would be the lesson? And so this is a fact we have learned. But what have you gleaned from the fact that he was the first martyr of the church? That's what I'm going to give you today, is this is what we should learn from that. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, and that was referring back to the sermon that Stephen preached in which he laid the blame at the feet of the hard-hearted Jews for crucifying Jesus and rejecting him just like they had rejected historically all the prophets. That's what it means when it says when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this. They were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him, but Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen was the first martyr. Let that be a lesson to you. Let me talk a little bit about the vision that he had. After this eloquent and powerful and indicting sermon that he had preached to the Jews who were guilty of crucifying their own Messiah, he made them insanely angry. And they were about to take action. And they rushed on him. Stephen has this vision before they begin the attack. 
at the conclusion of his sermon, it was almost like this vision that he had was a, a stamp of approval, heaven's validation of what he had just said and what he had just done. Like if I would get done preaching this sermon today and God was happy with it and he gave me this vision, there's God, there's Jesus, then I would feel like, oh, God must really be conveying an approval here to give me that. I would take that as a sign God's happy with something. And so at the conclusion of this sermon, for him to capture this vision, he was affirmed by heaven. And this vision has some powerful implications. First of all, it testifies to the God-man nature of Jesus. I have a friend that I have known ever since I was about 10 years old. He's 15, 20 years older than me. I've loved him as a brother in Christ and almost like a father all of my life. But at this time in his life, in his mid-80s, he's starting to get loopy. And it really is breaking my heart. And he's really messed up about the nature of Jesus, considers himself a, a very skilled Bible teacher, and the sad fact of the matter is his, his skills are deteriorating rapidly with his age. And he denies that Jesus Christ is, was the full God-man. And I said to him in one of our recent conversations, as he's getting off into some, some uh, heresy concerning Jesus Christ, I warned him this is the heresy that was dealt with by the early church and declared by the early church fathers to be heretical. You can't go there. And he just summarily dismissed it. And he said, I just can't comprehend anything you're saying. I've never heard anything like this. I don't understand it. All I know is what the King James Bible tells me. I said, Jesus Christ, you understand, according to the early church fathers, who were, who were taught by students of the apostles. And the apostles were taught by who? Jesus. You got Jesus, you got the apostles, you got the students, and you've got the early church fathers. This is about as close as we can trace back to the writings and recordings, uh, records of people who were taught by people who were taught by people who were taught by Jesus. That's pretty direct doctrine. That's a short time to mess up simple doctrines like who Jesus said he was. So the early church fathers understand Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God. And I told him, I said, we have the record of the early church fathers, the most direct link we have to Jesus himself describing who he is, saying he is 100% man and he's 100% God. And he responded to me, he said, that's impossible. Nothing can be 100% this plus 100% everything else. He said, you can't do that. It's impossible. I said, the virgin birth is impossible. You understand, you're dealing with Jesus here. And you're going to make the argument God can't do that? 
And so it's hard for us to get our brain around this concept, Jesus Christ fully man and fully God. He wants to believe he's 50% man and 50% God. And when he came to earth, he completely divested himself of all of his deity. And he was no longer God. He came as man. He was not God anymore. And he walked on earth as a man. And uh, to show us, that here's where it really gets loopy, gets crazy. To show us how to live to conquer sin. Because it can be done if you do it like Jesus did. And now the, the outcropping of this is he declares to my face, I am perfect. He said, I am sinless. I, am, I have conquered sin because Jesus showed me how to do that. And you know, if, if that's the case, you don't need a Savior. All you need is an example. You don't need a sacrifice. You need an example. You need a good teacher. Here's how to live above sin. I don't care who you are, Mr. I don't care who you are, sister. You are not perfect. You need a Savior. You need grace. On your very best day, you're worthy of hell. You still need Jesus. See, I'm getting mad at you because of what he tells me. A hundred percent man, hundred percent God. How are you getting off on this? I thought we were talking about Stephen. We are. Just let me get there. I'm taking a detour. Just a few months prior to Stephen standing there preaching this, just a few months prior, Jesus stood before the high priest, and the high priest questioned him, and he said, "Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One?" And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. He was telling him one of these days, you're going to see the Son of Man. Now, do you find it interesting that they use this expression, the Son of Man? Luke liked that expression, Son of Man. He was fond of that. What's the difference between son of man and son of God? It was an effort to show us that at any given time he was both. He was the son of man and he was the son of God. Don't forget that. That's what using that phrase is all about. When, when Stephen saw that, Luke recorded this, when Stephen saw that and declared, I see the son of man, that was the only time the phrase son of man was ever used in the New Testament outside of the Gospels. You don't see it in Paul's writings. You don't see it in the, in the, uh, the, uh, uh, of the other epistles. The only time. But it was still an ongoing reminder, this is fully man and fully God. So you see the comparison in this time when Jesus stood before the high priest and called himself the Son of Man and acknowledged that. And he said, you're going to see me one of these days sitting at the right hand of the Father. 100% man, 100% God. The two natures fully resident in one person, both existing without compromising the distinction of each of the two. There, there's a word for this, and I like to give you a word from time to time, not to impress you with words that I can come up with, because I just want you to acquaint you from time to time with some, some elements of theology. I want you to go over here smarter than you came, okay? 
It's called a hypostatic union. It's just a fancy name. You want to write it down? You want to remember it? You want to get some notes? Underline it? H-Y-P-O-S-T-A-T-I-C. It's called a hypostatic union. It's a fancy $10 word that they have used to describe one thing, and that is he is 100% man, and he is 100% God, and nobody else is. And he looks up in this vision, and he reaffirms And here's another $10 word, this theanthropic nature of Jesus. Thean, thean, coming from theos, God. Thropic, come from man. So you've got hypostatic, you've got theanthropic. A couple of words, just, just file those away. Remember, you heard it here first, okay? Memorize it. Work it into your conversation sometime. Stephen looks up, he sees... Jesus at the right hand of the Father, and he calls him the Son of Man. Don't forget who this man is. The second thing about this vision is it confirms the essence of Stephen's message that he just got done preaching. In his sermon, and I'm going to take you back to that. I know it's been a month ago or, or more when I preach this, but I'm going to take you back to that for just a second to summarize. In this, Stephen addressed to the Jews, your temple is not as important as you think it is. This temple is a place that you worship probably more than you worship God. It has taken an undue level of importance in your life and in your culture. And it's not that all fired important. And when he had this vision, it was reinforcing the fact that the temple was an inferior and inadequate means of accessing God because in the Jewish culture, that's the way you got to God. It was through the temple. That's where God dwelt. And this presence of Jesus at the right hand of the Father testified to the fact that through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension, that Jesus had opened up this new access to God never before enjoyed by humans. You don't have to go through the temple anymore. You don't have to go through the high priest anymore. Look up. I see Jesus. He's right at the right hand of the Father. I can speak to Jesus. He can speak to God. There's access now directly to God. Jews didn't like that. They were offended. No, no, you have to go through us. You have to go through our temple. Nobody else has the temple. Nobody else has the gateway. Nobody else has the key. We own it, kind of like the early church owned the scriptures. You have to go through us. The Jews were now being stripped of their authority in accessing God through them and their stuff. See, Stephen didn't go through the temple to get a vision of Jesus. I I got it right here. I just looked up, and there he is. Made them angry. You shouldn't be doing stuff like this outside of our temple, outside of us. You should go through us first. You got a direct line to God. It eliminates that intermediate mechanism of the earthly temple that was for centuries dominated by the Jews. Now the way is opened up. And nobody any longer can claim to be the exclusive gatekeepers for access to God. You can go straight to Jesus. The next thing about this vision is it reminds us that we have an advocate in heaven. And if I have a favorite part of this sermon, this is probably it right here. As I was putting this together, it just really touched me. It really ministered to me. 
Stephen sees Jesus, the Son of Man, at the right hand of the Father. But did you notice something strange? Jesus told the high priest, one of these days you're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father. And, Je- and Stephen looks up and he sees Jesus, but he's not sitting. He's standing at the right hand of the Father. Jesus never told anybody, you'll see me standing at the right hand of the Father. You'll see me sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's the position that he should assume because of his his rightful authority. That's what belongs to him. But something has happened in earth where the great judge of all the earth sitting with the Father, watching the earthly things go on. Suddenly something has happened where he stands. And heaven has to take notice because he's standing. What's going on? He doesn't stand all the time. Something special is happening. Stephen had caught the ear of Jesus. The actions of the Jews moving against him had caught the attention of Jesus. He wasn't just going to sit there and let this happen without having something to do about it because sitting there was the position of the judge. But standing by the right hand of the Father was the position of an advocate. He's standing because now it's time to intercede with the Father on behalf of Stephen on earth. I want to tell you there's times unbeknownst to you when what you're going through is more than you can bear. When what's coming against you is so unfair, so unreasonable. You're about to give up. You're about to lose it. But there's time unnoticed to you when the one who sits by the heavenly father suddenly stands up and begins to talk to the father and say, I see somebody on earth I want to talk to you about. What's happening to them is not right. It's not fair. People are coming against them. Lies, accusations. They can't bear up. But I'm praying to you, Father, would you have mercy on them right now? I'm coming to you as an advocate for them. I'm pleading their cause before you because they're not getting justice on earth. Did you know you have the advocate standing for you from time to time? You can only see heaven open and see Jesus is moved, touched by the feeling of your infirmities. It makes him stand before the Father and take a different approach. We come to accept Christ's place as being seated at the right hand of the Father as something that is fixed, something that is natural, something that is permanent, something that is dependable. But every once in a while, he stands for you. The fact that Jesus called him the Son of Man was like pouring gas on the fire for the Jews. They knew that Stephen was clearly implying that the one who came and walked among them was now the one who was ascended and in heaven and occupying that privileged position at the right hand of the Father. And heaven opens up and Stephen is more or less telling the Jews, I just caught a sight and I want to inform you the one you crucified is the one that's sitting right there. They didn't like it. As the council of earth was it about to pronounce judgment on Stephen for being guilty of blasphemy and then execute him by stoning, Jesus stood up and interceded to the Father and pled his case as a faithful and true witness. Declared guilty on earth, 
but exonerated in heaven by the great judge and declared innocent. Stephen, you may have been judged on earth by earth's counsel, but in heaven's courts you did good. Earth's courts might from time to time indict and convict an innocent person, but heaven never gets it wrong. There's times when you know you're innocent, but nobody will believe you, but heaven never gets it wrong. You have an advocate. You get blamed, but you didn't do it. You get mistreated, but you didn't deserve it. And you may not be able to change your earthly situation, but Jesus stands in your behalf. And they rush upon him, and they haul him outside the city. What they are about to do is too heinous, too gruesome, too barbaric to happen on the streets of the holy city. Just take him outside of the holy city. We can't do this here, this dirty job. They drug him outside the city, and they surrounded him, and they pick up the stones, and it was just such a knee-jerk, spontaneous action right now. No trial, no anything. What else do we need? He has blasphemed. He has insulted us. He deserves death by our law, and it's executed right now. We're not going to put this off for a day or a week. We're not going to go to council. We're not going to go to trial. He's guilty. It's killing. They hauled him out. Stoning was barbaric enough in those days. The Jews were very willing to stone if they felt like the law prescribed it. The person was guilty. The woman who was caught in the act of adultery, they were ready to stone her. Stephen, whom they felt had blasphemed, they were ready to stone him. As barbaric as that was in those days, stoning was a slow, gruesome, indescribably painful death. I mean, if you're going to kill me, if you have to kill me, can I have a say-so in this? Just chop my head off, okay? Just, let's just get it over with. But don't stone me. But stoning still goes on in parts of the world today. Particularly in uh, uh, Islamized countries. In, in some places, it's still legal in countries where Islam reigns and rules and dominates. In some, some of those places, it's been made illegal, but little factions still carry it on in spite of the law. Today, it's even more gruesome than it was what we just see in, in biblical accounts. As the victim is buried in the earth, sand, dirt, arms are locked down by the side, man is buried up to his waist, woman is buried up to her neck, just about to her neck. And a, a very slow, a very methodical uh, way of, of execution as they, they take time, they pronounce them guilty, they bury them, and then the, if, it's, if, it's a, if it's a woman that has been accused of adultery, the husband gets the first shot. 
and take a stone and throw it. And in, in one case that is documented, then the children were given a stone and said, now you must stone your mother. She's wicked, she's evil, she's vile. Can you imagine a child being taught to be so hard-hearted, so calloused, that in the name of being a good religious person, they're willing to hurl a stone at their own mother. Can you even imagine it? And then when the husband has had his opportunity and the children have had their opportunity, then the rest of the people can now join in. It might take 10, 15, 20 minutes. Not every stone's going to land a direct blow. Not a single stone, because the size of the stones are regulated, not a single stone will be big enough to cause immediate death. Only injury. Pelted with the stones, injured. And they continue to stone as long as there's any life. Now, one rule that does exist is if they if the victim can extricate themselves from this earthen prison, if they can get loose, if they can crawl out of this hole and they can escape the stoning, then they'll be free. Lots of luck with that. Otherwise, there they are, and they are stoned until there's no life left, and as one article described it, there's nothing left but a bloody stump. Stephen is hauled outside of town, they surround him. He looks up and sees Jesus pleading his case before the Father. And then they begin to pelt him with the stones. The pain is just beyond description. And when you know it takes 15 to 20 minutes for this to come to an end, your agony goes on and on and on and on until finally you expire. Because he preached the truth. Because he caught a vision that no man could deny. Because he saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father and they killed him. And the first Christian martyr goes down. Jesus warned his disciples, if you follow me, you might as well expect to be treated like me. Christians, you should be, without any exception, every one of you should be prepared for full persecution because of your faith. Every one of you here. Now, as, as unlikely as that may seem here in the United States of America, it doesn't make any difference. If you are not living your devotion to Jesus Christ to the point where you are willing to be persecuted for your faith, you, you're not committed to him. If your commitment to Jesus is so shallow that should persecution come, you would change sides to save the pain and the agony. Your devotion is nothing. It's convenient is all it is. Every one of you, your faith should be prepared to be persecuted because of your confession of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, let me put forth to you the way things are changing in the United States of America. We're not very far from open persecution against Christians. 
And those of you who are sitting here today, you may not see it, but I'm talking to people here today. You have children, and they've got another 60, 70 years on this earth. They may face open persecution. Some of you, you have grandchildren, and you just touched them. You just saw them today. And it's very possible that they're going to grow up in a world where their faith is going to be put to the test. Now, I'm not talking about being mocked at school. I'm not talking about being ridiculed by those relatives who do not understand. I'm talking about being persecuted for your faith. And your children, your grandchildren may be the ones standing before the persecutors and the executors saying either you will convert, you will deny Jesus Christ, or you're going to die right now. You understand this is your flesh and blood, and this is what they may very well face. And my question that I'm driven with the heart of a passionate pastor is, my question is, are you living the kind of faith that your children and your grandchildren can adopt that they will hold to whenever the storm comes? Or are you living a plastic Christianity that they'll trade it in in a heartbeat if the hard part comes to them? What kind of faith are you living? What are you bestowing on them? What are you telling them about what it costs to follow Jesus Christ? Are you preparing them for the things they're going to face? My wife and I were having some serious conversations with our grandkids just a couple of days ago. They're getting curious about things. They're asking why things are going on in the world like they're going on. They're asking why in the political world things are happening. They're asking questions, what does that mean? What does it mean about these people that are coming into the United States of America that hate this country, that hate Christianity, that hate the Bible, that hate Jesus Christ? What does it all mean? And we're trying to explain to them it means that you are a Bible-believing Christian and it may come to the point where you will have to face off against those people who hate you and revile you and they want to hurt you because of that. And they said, well, I'm scared. I said, I want you to be prepared. What are you going to do when that comes? Is this Christianity so cheap you're willing to trade it in when the going gets rough or are you willing to die for Jesus? Man, we shouldn't be talking to our kids like that. I want to tell you something. We had better be talking to our kids like that because if they're going to be the ones facing this kind of crown and you didn't prepare them and saying loving Jesus means taking up a cross. And you know what a cross means? How many of you know what a cross means? A cross doesn't mean a cruise. A cross means pain. A cross means suffering. A cross means death. As Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you better think twice about it because if you follow me, you're going to have to take up a cross. We haven't been preaching the cross enough in the church. We've been preaching health and wealth and prosperity and how good of a life you can have, but we haven't been preaching the cross like it needs to be preached. When we read this account of Stephen being the first martyr, I want you to understand the clear implication is he's not the last martyr. The church of Jesus Christ was built on the blood of Jesus. And the church of Jesus Christ has been advanced on the blood of the saints. And it may cost the blood of saints in the United States here today before it's all said and done. Do you care about your child? 
Do you care about your grandchildren? Are you preparing them for this? You don't have to travel very far around this globe before you're going to enter a country where this week, this month, your fellow Christians have been executed because of the faith in Jesus Christ. You're only removed by geography. You're not removed by time. You're only removed by geography from uh, geography from open persecution against your Christian brothers and sisters. Are you ready? Make no mistake about it. These early Christians, whenever they saw Stephen martyred, they knew what it was going to cost them to continue to confess Jesus Christ. They knew what they were in for. This young faith was now being put to the test as Stephen was executed for his faith. And those who were witnessing this stood back and they began to question, is it worth it to be a part of this newfangled movement? Is it worth it just to confess Jesus Christ, the Son of God, against the demands of the powerful Jewish leadership? Is it worth it? Can we risk our family for this new movement? The Jewish leaders were not content to allow someone to have their own belief system and religion that called Jesus Christ the one and only Son of God. They were insane with hatred against this Christian community. They were willing to let the pagans have their religion. They were willing to let the Romans do whatever they wanted to do, but they were not willing to let anybody have this Christian religion. They were bound and determined to stamp it out and to stop it. And these early Christians came quickly to understand they had to be prepared to risk paying the ultimate price to confess Jesus. Now most of us have suffered very little, if anything, for our profession of Jesus. We have not historically lived in a nation where it cost you anything to follow Jesus. The storm is coming. You're here today. You have to prepare yourself. You have to prepare your children. I'm telling, listen to me. If you, I've got very few years left with a microphone. I've got very few years to try and preach with any influence. I've got very few years left as a pastor to try and motivate you to do something. But with the years I've got left, I am passionate about trying to get you to understand the storm's coming. Are you ready? Is your family ready? Is your profession of faith that deep in Jesus that you're willing to say, Lord, no matter the cost, I'm going to stay faithful to you? Or are you still playing around with your plastic Christianity, attending church on Sunday and going out and acting like a heathen from Monday through Saturday? That's not going to get it. I want to remind you in the 24th chapter of Matthew Verses 37 through 39, Jesus describes conditions of the end times. And he said, in the last days, it will be like it was in the days of Noah. They were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day that the flood came and took them away, and so shall it be when the Son of Man returns. Now, what Jesus said there was people were carrying on as though life was going to be 
the same old, same old, day after day after day after day. We're going to eat. We're going to drink. We're going to, we're going to enjoy ourselves. We're going to get married. We're going to, and everything's going to, and, and suddenly something's going to happen that you did not prepare for. I'm telling you, the storm is coming. You cannot live your life like tomorrow's going to be exactly like today, like it was yesterday, like it was last week. The storm's coming. Are you ready? I end my sermon on the final prayer of Stephen. He's got just enough life left in him to be able to articulate, to speak. His mind is still clear enough for him to say, Father, don't lay this to their charge. Now, God's not going to forgive the Jews just because Stephen asked him to. What Stephen was doing was he was demonstrating what he had to do as an individual. He was demonstrating to the Jews, I did not come here to hate you. I did not come here to wish you to burn in hell. I came here because you are lost And you need to be saved. You need Jesus. And in his dying breath, he expressed to them, I didn't come in hatred. I came in love. And you can kill me if you want to, but my final prayer is, may God save you from your wickedness. May the Father find, may you you find mercy in him for what you are doing. He had to do that to demonstrate to them the motive for what he spoke. You know, it probably would have been a whole lot easier in our dying breath when these people are coming against you and making false accusations and all you're trying to do is be obedient to God and do what he asked you to do and these people are murdering you. The, probably the easiest thing to do would be with your last breath and say, God, Kill them all. Grind it in. Make them hurt like I hurt. This is wrong on every level. And it takes somebody with a depth of commitment and the heart of Jesus under those circumstances to even prayer, the kind of a prayer that says, Lord, can you find it in your heart to forgive them? Is that the kind of Christianity you have? Or are you over in the other? Kill them, Lord. Where are you? Your faith needs some work if you can't pray forgiveness on your enemies. And I think every one of you need to check your life today. I think some of you got hate in your heart that you want nothing but the worst to happen to those people you hate. And I'm telling you, stop it. Stop it right now. You cannot live in hate and bitterness. Till you can come to the point where you can pray like Stephen. These people are not stoning you to death. You just don't like them. Until you can come to the point and say, God, don't hold them against, don't hold it against them. Save them, God. Save my enemy. Save the worst among them. His true motives and his true heart was on display. You know, this happens when people are dying. When people die, they become interestingly transparent. I've sat by the, dying, the bedside of the dying people and I've heard 
some of the most interesting things as they begin to pour out to me, things that I didn't expect, didn't want to hear, didn't have to hear. But when we're facing death, suddenly you don't have any reputation to protect. It doesn't matter anymore. That facade that you held for all, everything, you, you tried to protect your reputation and who you are, suddenly it doesn't make any difference if you're getting ready to go into eternity and people get real honest. And in, in, in the moment just before he dies, you see the depth of the heart of Stephen. What was his heart? Love and forgiveness. They say the testimony of a dying person is, is valid in court because they believe at that point it, it, the truth is the only thing that matters anymore. There's no use hiding it anymore. So the testimony of a dying person is so valid. And the testimony of Stephen was that he truly loved those who hated him. So if there's one thought I can leave with you, are you ready? The young church laid their first martyr to rest and he's not the last martyr. If you, if you read in Revelation, and if Revelation is any, cue, any clue, we see symbolically Mystery Babylon, that great harlot, drunk on the blood of the saints. If that doesn't sober you up, I don't know what will. The storm is coming. If you're not prepared to give your very life, to, prefer, to preserve your testimony, you're in this for all the wrong reasons. When Jesus called us to follow him, it was a challenge to leave everything as secondary and make him primary. Are you willing and are you ready? Worship team, come.